Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right, gents, ready? Yep. Let's do it. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. Very special episode today. First time I'll be joined by two managers. Uh, it's the Ensemble Capital uh, President and CIO Sean Stannard Stockton and Senior Analyst Todd Wenning, who I've known for quite a long time. Uh, Ensemble has a very traditional Buffett-style, highly concentrated, high-conviction, high-quality investment strategy. Uh, we're going to talk to them right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Sean, Todd, welcome. Thanks for, Thanks having, for having us, Toby. I don't know exactly how we're going to handle this, but I'm going to just uh, we're going to feel our way forward and see how uh, see how we go. Um, maybe we'll start with Sean. I think have, you've been with Ensemble the longest, so perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the history of Ensemble. Sure, absolutely. So, firm was founded in 1997, uh, registered investment advisor by the now retired founder Kurt Brown. Um, he'd been in the business for a long time, and uh, you know the RIA business was. Um, bearing fruit and growing, and that was kind of what he wanted to focus on. So I joined him in 2002 as the second employee. Uh, we had $65 million under management. And then in 2004, we formed Ensemble Capital Management as an LLC, and I became a partner. Um, grew the firm since then. Kurt's now retired. Um, we have a handful of, of owners, about 15 people on staff, and managing $940 million on behalf of 200 clients, so high net worth individuals and institutions. And you're based in the beautiful San Francisco Bay Area. That's right. Although we've really embraced remote work. So as Todd can tell you, he's outside Cincinnati. Um, we have staff in uh, Southern California as well. And, um, you know, far from being kind of a, uh, a detriment to overcome, we've come to really appreciate the, the value, especially on the research side of having team members across the country in different demographics and geographic areas and, and how that, you know, we think, helps us make uh, better judgments on stocks as opposed to uh, being inside the Silicon Valley bubble. Yeah, it's a good place to be. Uh, I, I agree with you that you want to be away from the, uh, you want to be away from Wall Street, you want to be away from all of that as much as you possibly can. I love your strategy. It's a very traditional, what I regard as a very traditional modern Buffett strategy, long only, yeah. concentrated, high conviction, high quality. Do you want to just walk us through the strategy uh, how, as it stands? Sure. So at the strategy level, we're, we're focused on owning kind of 15 to 30 of the best businesses we can find that trade at a, a price that we think um, affords us, you know, market beating returns over the longer term if we do our job right. Um, you know, most importantly, the organizing principle of our strategy is not to be value investors or to be growth investors, but to invest in highly competitively advantaged businesses. Um, and, and then once we find those, we think those businesses and really only those businesses are we well positioned to value um, better than the market. 
Um, and, and so once we find them, we can establish an intrinsic value and at that point understand what is a discounted price to pay. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, this stock's a growth stock, it trades at 15 times earning, that's good. Um, we look at it and say, you know, what is going to allow this business to thrive for the long term? And that has to do with its competitive positioning in the industry. Um, Todd has coined a phrase here, idiosyncratic businesses, that maybe he wants to talk about now because I think it really gets at the sorts of businesses that we look for and why things like peer multiples and traditional you know, market multiples is really irrelevant to the work that we do. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, a lot of times what happens is you have sell-side analysts and buy-side specialists covering an industry and you know there's benefits to having that that depth of knowledge for the industry um, no question about it but what we find is that there's opportunities a lot of times in companies that kind of straddle two different industries sometimes you have uh, analysts covering the wrong that they're looking at through a different lens than we are so one example would be ferrari you know that might be assigned to an auto analyst but in reality it's both a luxury firm and an auto and, um, you know, for example, uh, First Republic is a bank, which is pretty much a commodity industry, but they layer on a high level of customer service, which makes them more akin to like a customer service business. And so we find you know, mismatches in valuations and um, outlooks uh, in those opportunities. And uh, we really love to find some of those businesses that don't really fit in uh, and have a lot of peer-to-peer competitors. One of the things that I noticed in your uh, deck that I thought was very interesting, you talk about focusing on high return on invested capital rather than high growth for the reason that high return on invested capital is more persistent. And if folks have listened to my podcast and they know my philosophy, I talk about return on invested capital being highly mean reverting. So I'm very interested to know what do you mean by it's more persistent or are you looking for companies where they really can sustain that high return on invested capital. At the market level, return on invested capital is highly mean reverting. So over the last 70 years or so, um, return on invested capital at the market level has averaged about 10%. Um, companies then use leverage to get ROE more like 13% or so. And though that those metrics plus kind of a say 5% growth rate in corporate earnings is what derives a kind of a 16 times multiple on the market. So you can kind of do the math on all of that. And and that's why that multiple has been so persistent over time is that every time returns on capital start to accelerate, you have a pouring in of capital into the industry, into the market, drives it back down again. Um, growth, you really can't grow much more than kind of the natural rate of the economy. So you have spurts of higher growth and lower growth, but it, it tends to mean revert. So we agree with all of that. But at the company level, that's not true, especially on return on invested capital. So you already see that just at the sector level where consumer staple stocks, say, have generated structurally higher returns on capital than the overall market for a very long time, whereas energy stocks, a lot of financials have not, right? And, and in fact, financials have to lever up to generate decent ROEs, and they're able to do that, but their return on invested capital is not that high. So if you look at um, the research that we most frequently references um, the book Valuation by McKinsey, <clears throat> which they have many editions of, and they show return on invested capital by uh, quintile. So they basically break the market up into five quintiles, and they reconstruct portfolios every year, and they, they roll that back over the last 70 years. And what you find is that in aggregate, 
what we just described is true. But within those quintiles, businesses that generate high returns on invested capital do so persistently. You still see some decay. So companies that maybe have a 40% return on tangible capital will see it decay down into the teens over time. But you still end up with a structural differentiation. And that's kind of easy to see at an economic level. Like a service company, a software companies, they all generate high returns on invested capital. Whereas commodity-based kind of capital-intensive businesses typically don't, right? Um, so what we're looking for is those sorts of businesses. And most importantly, higher returns of estimate capital generates structurally higher valuation multiples. Um, and so a high growth rate does not persist. And a, a company growing 20% a year, you can say, well, I can pay a high PE for that. But five years later, it's growing the same rate as the economy, right? Whereas returns of estimate capital support valuations in much more structural long-term ways. One of the interesting things about your deck at the very back, you have uh, lots of different moats, lots of different uh, structures for moats. Would you like to take us through those moats and what each one, uh, how, how you identify each one, what it, the, the significance of each one? Yeah, so I think there's two ways to think of different types of moats. Maybe Todd can take the second one, which is types of moats. And in the back of the deck, what you're referring to is we think that most businesses really don't have a moat. They're just competitive. That's why the market overall generates these kind of market levels of return invested capital. And you could look and say, well, why 10? Why not some other number? Well, the reason is, is that uh, investors can generate about 9% returns on investing just by, by an index fund. And so companies will reinvest in their business up until the point where they would just as soon pay it as a dividend and you can earn that 9%. So they drive the return invested capital down towards kind of stock market level returns, equity, cost of capital levels of returns. Um, and so we don't invest in those sorts of businesses. That doesn't mean they're bad businesses or the stocks are going to do poorly. It just means they're average and average is okay, right? Um, what we look for most, what our portfolio is most populated with is what we call capital light compounders. So businesses that are able to grow without reinvesting a lot of cash into their business. So MasterCard is a great example. So the business just relentlessly is growing uh, the top line of the double digits for many years, but it doesn't need to reinvest in the business because there's not a lot of capital required to bring on more credit card payers onto a network they've already built, right? Whereas a business like, say, Intel needs to invest heavily in capital equipment in order to keep growing their, their business. Um, so those capital light compounders is the most common type. Um, and then, but also businesses that can reinvest a lot of capital at high returns in equity are great, right? We don't object to those. But we like the capital light compounders in, in part because they can pay out uh, dividends and buyback stock even while they're growing. But just as importantly, during downturns, they don't get into capital crunches, cash crunches, um, because of this cash production that they are able to produce. And so even the bombs of recessions, they have cash flow that they can be opportunistic with. Um, and then the last type we talk about is kind of what is referred to as platform companies. So businesses uh, like in our portfolio, Transdime, that the, the internal business is not a very fast growing business. So they make uh, aftermarket airline parts. And so you know, the level of travel globally grows, but not rapidly. And so they can't drive growth through investing in the business, but they can acquire other very similar businesses and add to their platform. There's a fine line between like a roll up <laughs> and a, a good platform business. And so every business that does that is not a, a good business, but um, we look for specific types of those businesses. Every roll up describes itself as a platform though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's, it's a very important kind of 
nuanced distinction and, and not one that we think is just like a bright line where you can categorize a stock as one or the other. Well, that's, that's an interesting question. How do you make the distinction? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the management team and their understanding of you know, what they're doing exactly. So adding um, new businesses just to achieve scale, um, which a lot of roll-ups do, may not necessarily lead to good economic outcomes and in fact can end up with a collection of businesses that are not well integrated and are just a mess, right? Um, a business like Transdime and, and other businesses that do this well have um, capital allocation teams that really understand what they're doing. They tend to run decentralized um, organizations. Um, in many ways, Berkshire Hathaway is a platform company. Um, Constellation Software of Canada is an excellent example. Um, and so these are businesses where the management team understands their role as as acquirers um, very well and is really focused, much like Ensemble is, on finding businesses to invest in at the right the right price, um, which is very different than, say, you know, a fast food chain or something just buying up lots of competitors and hoping it all adds up to something more than the sum of the parts. How do you, uh, what, what would you say is your ideal target? Todd, why don't you take, take a crack at that one? Yeah, I think you know, for us, it's really three things have to be there. It has to be a moat, um, has to be good management, and we have to understand the business. We have to be able to forecast the business. Our valuations are driven on discounted cash flow and distributable cash flow, and a big driver of that is terminal value. And so if we can't get a good understanding of what the terminal value of the business might be, where margins might be, where ROICs might be, we're just we're going to throw our hands up and say, just is too hard, right? That's either we lack a certain domain expertise or um, there's a lot of um, inaccessible information that we can't, we can't grasp. Um, so we like to find businesses that one of us or all of us understand um, intuitively um, and can forecast and can work through the financials and understand how the financials work together. Uh, a lot of times, you know, one of those pieces won't be there and we'll just have to pass on it. Uh, we recently did the um, investing diagram on our website and the combination of those three things is what we're looking for, moat, management, and forecastability. And a lot of times, you know, one of those things is missing and you know, that's just you know, unfortunate, but you know, we're a highly concentrated fund. We have to be selective and we, that's where we draw the line. So that, that's uh, the, the Venn diagram, which I'll, I'll put a right. link to that in the show notes. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about the Venn diagram? Yeah, sure. So you know, I had done this for my personal philosophy before I joined Ensemble. And when I joined, I said, you know, this was a really instructive process for me. And we just, we've been kind of working with each other, trying to understand, you know, the process and kind of develop our process. And, you know, we're kind of building off an already great process, just trying to get a really good definition of what we really believe in. And so the Venn diagram was a nice way for us to illustrate that and kind of go back to it, put on our desks, put on our screens, just to say, you know, are we doing this um, with every business that we're looking at? Is there something that we're not staying true to? Are we getting too excited about the narrative and not looking at the substance and so on? So it's just a good way to keep us grounded and focus on what we do. Do you have any examples of companies that have fallen into that pile that you just can't understand what they're doing? <sighs> sure. Uh, thinking off the top of my head, um, you know, we looked at Tencent and, you know, started pulling the pieces apart and saying, okay, well, you know, we think it's got a moat, you know, it's pretty, pretty clear. There's something going on there. Um, management seemed fine. Um, but there's just a ton of moving parts in that business. And 
you know, until recently, Sean just came back from China uh, and uh, we had never been there um, to kind of see on the ground what's been going on. So it's hard for us as kind of you know, using the Western internet to really get a good appreciation and understanding for, for what's happening. So yeah, we didn't say like, we'll never invest in Tencent, but it's just that, you know, at that point in time, we just did, could not put it all together. Sean, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that. Yeah, and you know, I think another example uh, is Qualcomm. So this is a business we looked at a long time ago, and we fully understood the business in terms of how they were generating economic value. But that economic value is really tightly tied to their patent portfolio. And you know, we could read other people saying this is a very valuable patent portfolio, and we knew that it currently was because of the cash they were generating from it. But we weren't able to assess like, but are these going to be valuable in five years and in 10 years? And we realized that at some point they would come under some pressure and doubts would arise in the market, whether or not certain you know IP was going to other people could kind of move, run around the edges of it or in some way. And that we would be unable to judge for ourselves with our own conviction, you know, how strong it actually was. And you know, there's hedge funds out there that have patent portfolio lawyers on staff. Right. And we don't. And so we looked at that and just said, you know, we're just going to pass on that. There's there's other businesses out there. What are your impressions of China as a value investor? So, you know, Todd led the research into Tencent and Alibaba and other businesses and, and came away with the conclusion, as he just said, that, you know, they were uninvestable for us. But China is a huge economy. About half our portfolio has some exposure to China, either through selling into China or in some ways not selling into China. So we own Netflix and Google, which don't do business there. They don't do business in, you know, like a fifth of the world, right? I mean, this is a huge market and, and they may at some point over the longer term. And so when we decided to pass on Tencent Alibaba, we also said, we're going to be doing this for a long time. We think that any investor in global businesses, which is, you know, the most of the market, most of the U.S. market are global businesses, right? Forty-five percent of U.S. S&P 500 revenue comes from outside the United States, and we feel very comfortable with businesses like Ferrari that are actually headquartered in Italy that sell into global urban environments, um, and realize we would need to get more comfort with China. So, you know, spending a week there um, is certainly not um, a solution, right? It doesn't. We didn't come away saying now we understand it all. Um, but it was a great experience. Um, the way we ended up bringing that together is we started listening to a podcast that I would really highly recommend for any investors that want to understand China better called Tech Buzz China. And the two women that run that one of you know, their VCs and entrepreneurs, and they basically bill it as, you know, this is for an audience that understands business models, understands business, but it does not speak Chinese. And, um, and they really put it in kind of English language format, a very understandable way. And so we actually engaged with the two of them to take myself and RF and other analysts here and about a dozen other investors who themselves came from Singapore, the UK, India, US, Canada, um, and descended on Beijing and Shanghai for a week and visited with uh, 28 uh, mostly company representatives as well as the US State Department and other kind of industry people. And um, and it added great color to to you know what's going on there. And I think our biggest takeaway is is a recognition that for the kind of 200 to 400 million Chinese who live effectively a developed economy life, not much different at all from San Francisco or London or Dubai, um, that environment's probably investable for us. You know, for businesses that that we understand that are selling to those people, that's just because it's China doesn't mean we have to say it's we can't understand it. 
Um, and yet for most of the rest of the, the country, it's this is truly an emerging market, you know, and, and I wouldn't want to own a business that had large exposure there, not because it's China per se. It's just that, you know, we think that emerging markets should be invested in by companies that have analysts on the ground that understand the culture extremely well. And um, and for us, that's outside our circle of competence. That's very interesting. Um when you're generating ideas for the portfolio, what's the process for that? Like, are you screening or are you trying to understand businesses or both? How, how do you go about doing that? So we don't do any screening. And, and I think that um, you could think, well, geez, they like high returns on invested capital. Why don't you screen for businesses that have high return on invested capital? But a screen of companies with high returns on invested capital is a list of companies with a target on their back, right? These are businesses that are advertising to the world, we're super profitable, you should come take a piece of our profits, right? That's the mean reversion that you alluded to, right? This is, this is the exact area that comes under excessive pressure. So we never start there. You know, high returns on capital is an output of what we're looking for rather than exactly what we're looking for specifically. And so we look for businesses that have these competitive advantages, which you can't screen for, which is good for us. Because if you could, you know, lots of other people with bigger computing power than us would eat up all that alpha. Um, the things we find are kind of idiosyncratic, as, as Todd talked about. And Todd, maybe you want to talk about how we actually go about finding those businesses. Yeah, a lot of times it's just, you know, we're, as you know, we're pretty active on, on financial Twitter and FinTwit. And, um, you know, we have a network of people that we follow. And a lot of times they'll talk about a company that we had never really considered. And we'll start digging in and start peeling the layers back and see if they fit our, our profile. You know, I'd say one out of 10 times, it's probably a hit. And so it's not just on Finchwit, but just from reading, we read a lot of different industry reports, um, you know, analyst reports and so on. Uh, we're just we're constantly consuming information and sharing with each other. And so we find something that starts checking off all the boxes. We start digging in. Um, but you know, we don't, you know, like Sean said, screen for anything. Um, you know, I, ideally for us, you know, the ideal situation from an alpha perspective is trying to find companies that are growing into their moat, you know, moving from maybe the third quartile of ROIC into the fifth quartile or quintile of ROIC. And uh, you know, like I think Michael Mobison was just on your show, and one of his papers talks about, you know, those are the companies from an alpha perspective that really, you know, take over because they go from a low quintile to a high quintile and surprise the market. And that's where you can find great long-term opportunities. Well, how, how, do you, how do you find those sort of companies? I'll give well, you I a quick, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I'll give you a quick example um, for a business that we no longer own, Scott's Miracle Grow, um, which is a business that, like, on the surface, I think we would never have thought of. Like, Scott's Miracle Grow sells fertilizer, and fertilizer is a commodity, and it just seems boring, right? And, and how could this really fit our model? Um, but in all this reading, like everybody reads an industry. So saying, oh, we read a lot isn't really an idea generation idea, except for it's what we're reading for. And that is signs about competitive advantages, not signs for they've got a really hot new product or they're growing so fast. And so with Scott's, um, it was I read a Barron's article and, and it was actually about Home Depot. And the article mentioned that Home Depot was paying for radio ads advertising Scott's products. And I was like, that's not common. Like usually the product maker pays the retailer like shelf space or we, we want to, you know, be at the, the aisle cap or whatever. Right. So why is it going the other way around? And as we that was just the beginning, that was like the idea generation. And it wasn't enough to say we're going to buy the stock. It just was something curious. And as we looked into it, we learned that 
for 10 weeks out of the year, kind of six weeks in the spring and four weeks at the end of summer, uh, lawn and garden care products is the number one reason people go to Home Depot and Lowe's. And so for those 10 weeks out of the year, Scott's, which has higher market share of lawn and garden than Coca-Cola does of the soda business, um, is the dominant driver for why people go to these two huge retailers. And so both Home Depot and Lowe's run radio ads and print ads and television ads, and internet ads of Scott's products. They're like doorbusters, right, to get you in the door. And uh, then they hope you buy a lot of other stuff. So Scott's loses money 40 weeks out of the year and then mints money during those those 10 weeks. Um, they're basically a branded commodity. You know, It's not good if you have a commodity if other people sell it, but nobody else sells what they do. They have like total market share, right? So you go into a Home Depot and you see Scott's products and then you may see a local competitor, like one or two bags off to the side. Um, but it's a it's really wonderful business. We don't own it anymore because over the years of owning it, the eccentric CEO and and many great CEOs are eccentric. We come to we came to lose confidence in. Um, you know they've moved into aggressively supporting the marijuana growing industry, which is not something we object to on the face. California, it's legal. Um, but his his engagement in all of that was done in in kind of a wild wild fashion. <laughs> He's famous for cursing on conference calls talking about dropping acid and, and we were like we, we can't partner with this person anymore fair enough that's a fascinating story though um <laughs> when you when you so you, you get the the lead generation and then the next step is some sort of assessment of the company which must lead to evaluation so can you describe that process for me are you do you start with the unit economics or, or where do you start Todd. go ahead Todd. i was just gonna say, okay uh just thinking about you know well, for us, we really want to understand the business, like we talked about. And a lot of times that is unit economics. We want to find you know, some key variables in the business that we can keep an eye on to see if the results are following what we expect to happen. Um, and so you know, we, we do build DCFs, as, as we, we discussed. Um, you know, we try to keep them as simple as possible without it going any simpler. Um, and you know, really try to understand the bulk of the business, not try to, you know, create this wild narrative with a huge spreadsheet, but just, you know, understand the economics of the business, how much cash flow is it throwing off? How do we expect that to happen in the future? Um, and a lot of that comes back and that's all informed by our qualitative judgment. So thinking about moats, if we're very confident in the company's moat, you know, one of the steps in our processes is to, you know, we have six core questions that we ask, uh, two on moat, two on management, and two on understanding. And one is, do we think this company's moat is going to be at least as wide, if not wider, in the next 10 years? And so if we're confident in that, we can be more confident in our ability to understand, okay, here's where ROICs very well could be in the terminal year. Um, you know, it, if we don't know that, going back to understanding, you know, it, it, all gets, it all gets broken apart. So we all have to, we have to understand the business, understand the moat, and understand the management. Is part of that an assessment? This is the this is the total addressable market. This is the lifetime value of a customer. This is the customer acquisition cost. Is that part of the process? For some businesses, sure. You know, if we're looking at a software company, um, those are the metrics we might use. Um, you know, we might find some sort of penetration rate for uh, another type of business, or you know, but those are typically when we're looking at sort of more uncertain outcomes, um, you know, we 
used to own a, a, a pet insurance company called Trepanion, which is a very, uh, very controversial company uh, on Fintwit. And one of the things we looked at was, okay, well, how many pets are they addressing as a percentage of all pets coming through um, the, the vet offices every year? How many new puppies and kittens are going into vet offices every year? And how many of those are they getting? And so that's what we're, we would, for that company, we were trying to understand. You know, in addition to that kind of top-down level, the total addressable market, which is which is important and also very widely used, we also think about um, the that's the insider perspective. In in Danya Kahneman's work, you talk about like you can analyze the company come with the insiders, but then there's also the outsider view and looking at this. Well, what about classes of companies? And so I mentioned that you know return invested capital does not um, decay as much, but growth does. And so in making forecasts, we often will bound our forecasts by kind of class level decay rates to say, this business is growing 12% a year right now. It is bound to slow down just because this is what businesses do. And we hope to find businesses that will buck that decay rate, that will outperform. And that's part of our margin of safety. We don't, we don't count on that in, in valuing the business. Um, other times there's things that are are unique about the business where we say that decay rate is just not applicable because of some very concrete level, not just because, look, it's growing so fast, it's going to keep doing it forever, but there's something about the business that's going to allow them to grow for a long time. Todd uh, found a business called Massimo for us, and, and that business has been kind of grinding out solid growth, and that's because they are taking basically 100% incremental market share every time the hospital replaces the systems that they use. And so you can look at how much is left, they're eating all of it. It just goes slowly as the old units come you know, at to end of life. And so you can very clearly forecast, this is gonna grind away and grind away at, at, a, at a modestly high rate for a long time. And the decay rate's not applicable in that situation. One of the slides in your presentation talks about, and this is a nice segue, but talks about finding quality growth at a reasonable price. So what, what, what is quality growth at a reasonable price? Todd. Sure. Um... So, I'm just sorry, Sean. I saw you were getting ready to answer that. I didn't mean to cut you off there. Happy for either of you guys to, to do that. You take this one, Todd. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, for us, you know, quality growth is, again, a, a merging of the, of the three factors that, that we hold so dear, moat management and, and forecastability. Um, you know, there aren't many companies that check off all those boxes. You know, if, if we can find those companies, you know, we're we're – we are very happy to put them in our bullpen, if not in the portfolio, um, right away because they're just so rare. And you know, if you look back at you know some of the great growth businesses over the past 30 years, they were always they were there in plain sight a lot of times. And you know, it's just people are like, oh, debating over 15 or 20 PE. Well, you know, you could if you look back, I've I've seen some studies saying you know you could have paid 80 times earnings in 1970 for McDonald's and still made market returns. You know, obviously that's with hindsight, but you know, it, you, looking about like you know, it's an elite business, um, and you know, there's just there's so few of them out there that you really have to understand all of them. And, and we look at elite businesses not just in the U.S. but internationally. Now we don't always invest in them, but we have we we think about them and then kind of use them as, as learning and, and fodder to understand uh, what businesses are in our universe. So sorry, Sean. I was just going to say one element of quality too is growth that generates economic value for the shareholders and not all growth does right so some businesses can can force growth and generate revenue growth um 
but uh, you know, Derek Thompson of the Atlantic has an article out today talking about the kind of um, millennial subsidy project of all these kind of consumer direct consumer VC backed businesses, and and you know, s- some of them are growing very rapidly because they're basically like paying people to take their their business or their their products, right? And but it's not economically value generative. Um, it, it in some cases it may become so in the future, but it's unclear. That's why return invested capital is is so important. That when you grow at high incremental rates of return on invested capital. It's wonderful for shareholders, but you can also grow in ways that's not value creative. And so um, we just kind of pass on businesses that have low returns on invested capital because growth is like worthless. They should not grow, just pay all the cash out to shareholders. That was one of the most interesting things about WeWork for me that it was regarded as some sort of magical company when it's, it's, if, you, if you jam a lot of capital into any company, you're probably gonna see some growth. Yeah, yeah. Um, w- once you've once you've identified these companies and you've come up with a valuation for them, uh, you're you're trying to decide how much capital you put into each in the portfolio, and so you use some sort of Kelly criterion weighting to do that. So can you t- walk me through that process? Yeah. So the Kelly criterion um, it was designed to judge the size of bet that a better should place in any given situation. And what it says is it's not just the payoff amount, right? So like if you're going you're gonna to earn five times your money, if you bet, or 10 times, that's important. But the other is how likely you are to win. And so the kind of simple example is imagine if I said to you, you know, Toby, um, I have a bet for you. It's a 50-50. It's a coin flip, right? And if it's heads, you win 100 times your money. And if it's tails, you lose everything. Well, that's a great bet, right? Would you bet your life savings on it? Well, probably not because you have 50% chance of bankruptcy. And you'd say, well, if I win, it's great. My expected return is fantastic, but I can't risk half my capital going bankrupt. But you would certainly bet on it and you'd have to size that in some smaller way, right? If you had another bet that was saying, you know, well, it's just two to one, you you bet it, you double your money, but there's a 99% chance you win and 1% chance you lose. You might bet your whole net worth, say 99% chance I double my net worth right? 1% chance of bankruptcy. So the Kelly criterion says that the odds of success are just as important as the as the return potential. And so we go through that process and say, what are the odds of this business being successful, right, over the long term? And businesses that we have higher confidence in, I mean, we this is a concentrated portfolio, we have confidence in every stock in the portfolio, but we force rank all of them to understand where do we have the most confidence. And then at any given appreciation potential, so you say you have two stocks and we think that they both have 30% upside to their intrinsic value, we would own more of the one that we had more certainty about that. And the certainty level actually drives our position weights even more so than the upside potential, although everything in our portfolio is trading at a discount to what we think it's worth. I love the uh, logic of Kelly, which is that you should never risk ruin. And so it's summarized into do not bet thy whole wad. And the other thing yep. is that Kelly describes the outer limit of the geometric return possible and so you, and the size of your bet. So you should never bet more than Kelly because then overbetting is just as risky as, as underbetting. So when you, and when just you, one, one thing, just to be clarify for listeners, like we don't use the Kelly criterion formula exactly in setting our position weights, but it, ours is a Kelly criterion inspired. It uses the same philosophy and, and inputs but we don't think the Kelly criterion as a pure mathematical equation works primarily because investors do not know the payoff amount and they do not know the likelihood of success. Those are both estimates and therefore the Kelly criterion fails 
given that you don't actually know the two key inputs. Kelly's also used uh, in series when, when you're investing in real life, you're investing in parallel because you've got a portfolio. So that's, that's, uh, that necessarily requires that you size down all of the positions. When you're, when you're in a position, so that, sort of, that does answer the question, but are you, you're actively trimming and adding as the, as the portfolio um, moves along. That's right. So, you know, every investment we make, we make on the basis that if we held it forever, our return as, as a private business, where we only received the cash flow being generated by the business, not through kind of flipping it to another investor, that that cash return would generate our required rate of return. So we invest as, as long-term investors in that sense. Our actual holding period has been between three and five years. And if you look at it over one-year time periods, about 75% of market returns is explained by changes in the P-E ratio, and only 25% is explained by um, earnings growth and the return of capital to shareholders, buybacks, and dividends. But over five-year time periods, those flip, and 75% is explained by the fundamentals of the businesses and only 25% in investor sentiment or P-E ratio changes. So we think that our holding period of three to five years is basically just that when we buy, it takes that long for the, the corporate results, which is what we're investing into, to actually play out and other investors to, to get on board with that, which of course, when we're wrong, means pricing down the stock to the less attractive fundamentals than we expected. Um, but we've also owned businesses for a decade or more, and there's been times we've bought a stock and 14 months later, it's up 100% or, or we just realize we're wrong. And so we, we're not kind of buy and hold in the sort of like, well, this is just a good company and we don't have to think about it anymore. So that, that's, that's an interesting question. How do you know when you're wrong? Well, there's kind of three core reasons that we sell a business. And Todd, you want to walk, walk through those? Yeah, I think you know, one is that our thesis just broke. Something fundamental about the business just did not match our expectations. Either we misread the management team or we misread the moat or it got more complicated or more complex than we anticipated. Um, another reason would be that the stock price hit our expectations. It went over our fair value and, and we sold it down. Um, the third would be we have a better opportunity elsewhere. You know, we look at opportunity costs very seriously. And so, you know, if you think about a stock that's fairly valued, but you got one that you think of as, as of equal quality and opportunity that's 15% cheaper, you know, you should roll money into that new opportunity. And so, you know, we you know, ideally will hold on to great businesses for a long time. We've held, I think, MasterCard for since close to the IPO, right, Sean? Uh, well, since about 2010. 2010. Okay. So you're close to 10 years now. Um, and we've held a couple other of that long, uh, way before my time. So you know, that's the ideal. doesn't always happen. And it's not always for bad reasons that we're selling. Sometimes things just work as we expected. And that's good. Or the uh, CEO starts talking about taking asset. <laughs> <Is that? laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want that. Um, Let's just talk about your, your top position. So your, your, your top holding is booking. Can you walk us through the thesis there and, uh, and tell us what's happened since you put it on? Sure. So Booking Holdings is the largest OTA, online travel agency in the world. A lot of Americans don't know it as well. Um, they know Travelocity and, and other businesses, most of which are owned by Expedia. Um, and that's because Booking's kind of uh, core markets are Europe and Asia. And so what's interesting about um, 
agency businesses, you get a commission for somebody else's business. It tends to be very capital light and they tend to have high returns on invested capital. Um, but airfares, because there is a relatively small number of air carriers in the world, and because most consumers say like, I just want the cheapest flight, I don't really care which airline I travel on, um, the margins are thin and OTAs don't earn very high returns on, um, on sourcing flights. And then in hotels, branded hotels can draw travelers themselves. So you, you know, Marriott and Hyatt can just say, well, you just keep coming back to Marriott. So if you go to New York, a lot of Americans will say like, I stay at Hilton when I go to New York and they just go to the Hilton website. But Europe and Asia has far lower hotel brand penetration. So it's like 20, 30% of hotels are actually branded. Most of them are boutiques and small chains. And those hotels have no access to demand. They have no marketing platform and they must list on some sort of OTA. And so uh, booking is the OTA of choice. So, you know, in America, you say like, well, I'm going to Google something. But when you say I'm going to search it online and in Europe, like booking is how you book hotels, right? It's actually the reservation system for many small hotels. So I was in Spain uh, two years ago and we went to a hotel and booking was the reservation system. So if you'd walked in the door and said, I want a hotel tonight, they would book it on booking.com <laughs> and pay the commission because they didn't have their own reservation management system. Um, so it's super dominant in, in the very inefficient uh, hotel market in Europe and Asia, super lucrative. Uh, Expedia, we have zero interest in. They're focused on the US, which is dominated by brand hotels and in airfare. Those businesses are just not so good. So this idea of idiosyncratic businesses, we never look at booking and Expedia and say, they're both OTAs, which one's cheaper? We have one we're interested in, one we're not. Is that booking.com? Booking.com is their kind of flagship site. So the business was actually Priceline. So the kind of amazing story is Priceline was founded and IPO'd in the late 90s, one of the hottest dot-com stocks. Um, it fell, I think, 99.8% from top to bottom during the dot-com crash. And then in the midst of the wreckage, they bought this little business called Booking.com. And that turned into this globally dominant business with an $80 billion market cap today, a market cap we think is worth much, much higher. Um, and uh, and so a couple of years ago, they changed the name. Um, they own part of C-Trip in China. They own parts of all sorts of travel businesses around the globe. Uh, the second position that you have listed is Ferrari. So Todd, do you want to take Ferrari? Sure. I think, you know, we talked about Ferrari earlier being an idiosyncratic business, being both luxury and auto. And we have just a tremendous amount of respect for the Ferrari brand. RF actually went to Italy for their unveiling of the uh, one of their latest cars and got to test drive it in Italy. And, you know, I got... I, I gotta start following Ferrari instead of RF. You know, I gotta make these great trips. But, but yeah, we what what RF learned the great insight that we learned from our trip to Ferra to Ferrari was that it's basically like joining a billionaires club, right? You know, the people at those those events that were hand selected by Ferrari to come out have just a massive amount of money and this uh, disposable income, and to be in the same room as those people. You know, think about the connections in those rooms, and so there's really a just a strong cult-like following for Ferrari, and it's among the elite. Um, you know, the entry-level Ferrari is something like two hundred fifty thousand dollars or something, and um, you know the new ones were are million dollars, two million dollars, and they're pre-sold before they're even told the price. You know, so that's not money that most people have. 
um, you know, to spend on a car. And so really Ferrari is just, you know, it's a passion for racing. It's a passion for cars. And, you know, it, it kind of connects you to this network of highly connected, like-minded people. So it's a network. Well, where's, just, where's the value? That's what I'm trying. It's a sure. It's you know, Ferrari looks like a, a metal bender to me. But is there sure. there's something more to it than that? Yeah, I think it's 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 a luxury, right? It's an identity. You know, if you are able to drive around a Ferrari, it's telling people around you something, right? That this person loves racing. They love craftsmanship. They see it as an art. It's it's a very valuable piece of machinery, and you know, in terms of the network. It's really about, you know, if you are, you know, an exclusive person to be invited to one of these events, you know, you're rubbing elbows with, you know, billionaires from Europe and Asia and all over the world. And so it, it can actually improve your own outcomes and your own net worth by, you know, connecting with, with great people that can put you in touch with other great people. And so it, it's really buying into this, this club. That's... And you know, Toby, we would um, we have zero interest in car companies, not because they sell cars, but because they have really weak profit margins. Because if you sell a Honda Accord, and you raise the price by a thousand dollars, well, you're selling a thousand dollars more than the comparable Toyota. And a lot of buyers will say, like, well, why would I pay an extra thousand dollars for the Honda? It's basically the exact same car, which it is. And because it's a functional transportation device, it's just about how much do I pay to get around, right? Now, Americans in particular care about what they get around in, right? And so luxury cars have generated you know, solid returns. But Toyota is in a whole other universe. So lots of car companies might have single digit profit margins and Ferraris in the high 20s on the way into the high 30s, right? So they actually talk about their peer group as the other luxury brands. And there's an 18 month wait list to even buy a Ferrari. So if you're a billionaire, you can't stroll into a Ferrari store and say, I'd like to buy one. They're like, I'm sorry, you'll have to get it to the back of the line. Right. And when you get to the front of the line, you can only buy the entry level car. You are not allowed to buy their more expensive cars. And if you get to that front of the line and let's say it's a recession and you say, you know, it's just really not a good time for me to buy a Ferrari. So I'm going to wait till another time. They say, no problem. You don't have to buy one. You can't ever get back on the list, though. This is your one <laughs> shot. So somebody who has enough money to buy a Ferrari still has enough money to buy a Ferrari in the depth of the recession. So it's proven to be the most session recession resistant car company, which you would think it'd be the opposite, right? Yeah. This is this is the sort of stuff we're looking for. You'd say like the ultimate discretionary purchase, right? But this waitlist means that there is 18 months of people who are willing to get, you know, to buy the car if you don't buy the buy the car. So Todd mentioned and alluded to this, the idea that people, you know, buy cars without knowing how much they cost. <clears throat> so when Arup was in Italy, they were launching a new supercar that they told only the people they invited to buy it. They talked about it as a gift to their customers, right? They were only making 500 of them. And they told their customers that they invited to the event that it would cost between two and $3 million. That's all they said. And they sold out on that basis. So imagine not knowing how much anything's going to cost, let alone a range of, of you know, 50% upside from, from the two to 3 million, and they sold out. I mean, this is a, a not a car company, right? And, and when people say not a car company, um, you can apply that. Sometimes people say that like a narrative way. Like, I don't think of it like that, so therefore it deserves a different valuation. What we're talking about is entirely different economics and cash generation to shareholders than your average car company, and that's what's worth more. Not just that it's Ferrari and it's special. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's very interesting. I'll have to tell my wife that there's a <laughs> business reason for buying a Ferrari so we can get to these <laughs> events. Yeah. Um, MasterCard. So we raised that. We you, you talked about it a little bit earlier. It's it's 
fairly well known. What's the what's the thesis on Mastercard? And uh, you're still holding it ten years after the initial purchase, so it's still bearing fruit and working out. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most kind of inevitable businesses that we've come across, right? In that. Um, they and Visa built this payment network and payment networks are extremely hard to build because let's say you had a brand new card, Toby, somebody, you know, reached out to you and said, I have this new card. It's not Visa or MasterCard. It's, you know, Brand X and we're going to give you 10%, 10% cash back. Well, the Apple card is a MasterCard. So you, the way credit cards work is you basically have an issuing bank. In the case of the Apple card, it is Goldman Sachs. And then you have a Visa or MasterCard logo, always one of those, and that's the processor. So you might hear about 2% credit card fees, but Visa and MasterCard are getting 120th of the fee. The bank, which has the credit risk, is charging the rest of that. And sometimes they co-brand, like with Apple or American Airlines or whatever it might be. Um, building that that network so if it was a mastercard or visa you could use it anywhere and you would say great i think jp morgan said today on their call that the apple card was the most successful credit card they have ever launched right so it's not so hard to launch a new credit card as long as it's a visa or mastercard but if it has some new payment network and let's say it offered you say as a consumer we'll give you 10 percent cash back and you'd say great and you go to every store and nobody accepts it well then you're like this is worthless but the stores aren't going to accept it until all the consumers have it and if, if you don't have it, so it's a chicken and egg problem, right? And so it's very hard to build these, these networks, but Visa and MasterCard have done that. And at this point, it doesn't make any sense. So across the whole FinTech area, there is so much innovation going on and all of it is building on top of the rails that Visa and MasterCard have laid down. Really nobody's trying to develop a new payment network, except in China where a whole new ecosystem has developed that we think will be mostly contained to China. Um, for a lot of reasons, but Visa and MasterCard have no chance in China because they already have their own payment network. That's fascinating. So that's that's one of the questions that I had. Did, what, what is the impact of Bitcoin, uh, other crypto on something like that? Do you think that that will still need to be built on top of uh, Visa or MasterCard's network? So blockchain technology is clearly a potential end run around the Visa and MasterCard rails. And as much as, you know, we never invested in Bitcoin and, and we wouldn't, we think blockchain technology is real. And I think the analogy is if you look at the, the late 1990s, investments in like dot-com stocks were all zeros. But the Internet was more impactful than I think even the biggest optimists of the late 90s actually thought. All bubbles are like that, right? They're built on some, some truth, some core truth, and they're taken too far and, and often just too early and too fast, right? But the Internet was correct, the thesis was correct, right? It just didn't mean that you should buy pets.com. Um, blockchain technology allows for um, the removal of a trusted third party between two people that don't know each other. And in our portfolio, uh, First American Financial, which helps, it does a title insurance, so you're, you're buying and selling a house, you don't know the other person, you need a trusted intermediary. Um, paychecks, payroll processing, MasterCard, allowing me to go to Peru and swipe a piece of plastic and be given food and walk away and we don't know each other. It's like magic, but MasterCard is that trusted intermediary, right? So we've been tracking blockchain very closely because we do think it's a risk to a lot of business models, a lot of trusted intermediary business models, but we don't think it's near fruition. That's very interesting. Um, Broadridge is a position that a lot of finance folks may know, a lot of investment folks might, may know, but it's not very well known outside those circles. So Todd, do you want to take Broadridge? 
Sure. Uh, and Sean, you can add on to it. Anything I'm, I'm missing here, but you know, thinking about Broadridge, you know, if you receive a proxy statement from any company or any mutual fund that you have, uh, that's pretty much Broadridge. I think it's like 98% market share. Right. And so it's all kind of finance firm back office flying under the radar, but super, super important to the financial firms that, that use the software and, and use its programs. Um, you know, in, in terms of wealth management, you know, they're, they're building into that, that, that business. Uh, and so we love those types of businesses where kind of flying under the, the market's radar, you know, no one's outside of the finance industry really understands Broadridge, but super high recurring revenues, uh, very capital light, uh, great margins, great returns on invested capital and great management too. checks off all the boxes for us. I think one of the things with Broadridge, when we first invested, I think in 2012, a lot of people were worried about regulatory risk. Like this is a, a financial right, and and what's the SEC going to do? And there continues to be those concerns. Um, Broadridge's CEO has said there has never been a regulation that has hurt our cash flow, and a lot of people just kind of can't believe that. But the way we think about it is that the SEC is is regulating banks and brokers and mutual fund companies, but Broadridge is basically the the proxy tool to allow all of those other companies to obey regulations. Right. So when the SEC says we want to make sure that shareholders are voting their proxies, they are using Broadridge as a private sector actor to enable banks and brokers to help their shareholders actually vote their proxies. So rather than being the focus of regulation, they are the tool to enable regulation. And so they're in a really, really beautiful place. And one small example of that was, um, you know, most of us all get electronic proxies now or, or digital statements. And Broadridge was the one who was mailing. Like if you have a Schwab account and you get a statement from Schwab or an email saying your statement's available, that's all coming from Broadridge. And so uh, they are required to send that and required to, to have it sent out, the proxies and all of that. And the SEC said, if you can switch people to digital, you can charge a digital service fee. So you, I mean, it's a hundred percent revenue. There's no cost to like emailing somebody, but they, the SEC wanted people to convert to, to um, digital delivery. And so they enabled a fee so that Broadridge rather than losing business by switching everybody off of paper is actually losing revenue, but greatly enhancing their profit stream from moving everybody over. Is there any sort of um, metaphysical risk from having 98% of the market? Do you have too much market share is there a risk that they have some sort of antitrust or some some other issue like that i mean they didn't get there through acquisitions or anything like that um you know we often look for businesses that have just overwhelming market share and a, a phrase that we use is that some businesses might mortgage their moat and that means you start abusing your position Right. And you, you know, be in a situation where you've trapped your customers and you just say, well, we can just jack up prices dramatically. We're very sensitive to that, because even if you can over the longer term, your customers will find some way around you. Like that's how capitalism works. Right. So you keep raising the price umbrella and you give room for disruptors to come in underneath that. Um, Broadridge does operate within a regulatory regulated industry. And so while their own returns on invested capital are not regulated the way like a utility might be, um, we think they're quite sensitive to not not overcharging people. And they've done a really good job 
um, demonstrating the, the value, the, the cost that they have saved their clients relative to what they charge. Um, so yes, there's that risk. And, you know, um, like we looked at Live Nation, which owns Ticketmaster a number of years ago. And initially I was like, what a beautiful, beautiful business. And then RF on our team, who I think probably goes to more concerts than me, was like, everybody hates Ticketmaster, like really, really hates them, you know? And oh, we were so looking to like, well, yeah, right. And why? And, and the bands and the comedians and so on. Everybody, that's, everybody hates them, right? And so in looking into that, we said, well, why do they hate them? And we realized that, and why do you do business with a business you hate? And that's because there's no other option. But there may be at some point in the future, because when everybody hates the business um, and you're charging dramatically, somebody out there in a dorm room someplace is figuring out a better solution. Yeah, that's, 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 uh, that's exactly right. I, I tend to agree with you there. Uh, and the final position that you have is Schwab. So that's a really interesting one right now, right? Because they just took commissions to zero. The stock fell 10%. Um, but Schwab has, um, over the years, transitioned their monetization model many times. So um, the earnings are going to drop about 10% for them because of the elimination of commissions, which which they eliminated. So you say, well, why would you eliminate commissions and hurt, hurt your earnings, right? But their major discount competitors are taking like 20 to 40% drops in earnings. Um, most of Schwab's... Uh, earnings come from uh, asset management fees. So if you have a mutual fund listed with them, the mutual fund company pays for that right and and pays Schwab. And then also on the cash and client accounts, they they earn money on that cash through their bank. Um, and so they have a, a beautiful business. But what we liked so much about the move, I mean, it's painful when when we know your biggest holdings falls ten percent. But the analogy I, I give is, um, you know, it's like in the the action movie where the bad guy has his arms wrapped around the good guy and the good guy takes his gun out puts it to his shoulder and shoots through his shoulder and kills the bad guy. That's what Schwab did most recently by eliminating commissions, right? It hurt them, but it destroyed their competitors, right? And they are in a much better, better position now from a competitive standpoint. Um, and if you look at most of the assets that they're gathering, you know, they're growing organically. They have, I think it's $3.6 trillion in assets and they're growing organically by 6% per year. I mean, it's, it's unreal, right? Um, and on top of that, you get market appreciation and all of those sorts of things. But assets are flowing out of kind of the wirehouse banks and brokers, mostly to Schwab. And imagine that you are a commission broker and now trying to explain not just to your clients, not just that there is a discount alternative, but there is free alternatives. Mm -hmm. And research is very clear. Consumers behave very differently between free and cheap, right? So there's things that we do because something's free that will behave totally differently if you just charge a penny or a nickel for the exact same thing. So we think the elimination for commissions is really going to bring flows into the entire, no longer discount brokerage industry, free brokerage industry. And that Schwab in particular, with about half of their assets are with registered investment advisors acting as kind of asset gatherers for them. Um, we think they're very, very well positioned for the long term. Well, thanks very much for that uh, explanation, gents. Uh, congrats on fantastic one, three, five, ten inception returns. Uh, really phenomenal work there. If folks want to get in contact with you, what's the best way of doing that? Um, visiting our website at ensemblecapital.com, um, and uh, you know we have all of our contact information. People can reach out to any of us individually. Uh, intrinsicinvesting.com is our our blog. Um, it's available to the public, not just our clients. Um, and then you can follow us on Ensemble Capital at Twitter as well. And Todd, your your Twitter account, so on. Sure. Uh, my uh, Twitter personal Twitter handle is 
at Todd Wenning, T-O-D-D-W-E-N-N-I-N-G. I'll put those links in the show notes. Uh, Sean Stannard Stockton, Todd Wenning from Ensemble Capital. Thank you very much. Sure thing. Thank you. Thanks, Toby.